So I want to continue this week with the theme that we brought up last time, which is the theme of mindfulness and what's called in the Pali language papancha, P-A-P-A-N-C-A. And it's, everyone I've met likes the word, even though it actually describes something that's a little bit distressing aspect of our nature. But papancha is the tendency towards proliferation of stories, assumptions. Uh, it's basically the mind spinning a lot. Uh, and typically getting that we get lost in that spinning. It's sometimes literally translated as conceptual proliferation or mental proliferation. It's that quality that we might have experienced um, um, sitting here where we, you know, we may have been sitting quite innocently on the cushion and I, you know, I'm sitting and I feel a little, um, a little restless, maybe not so concentrated. Then I think, hmm, what am I going to do for lunch? And then I think, should I go home or should I go out? I've worked really hard this week. I should go out. Where should I go to? (laughs) Well, uh, that place that has those sandwiches, that was really cool last time. And yeah, and I I often meet my friends there. I wonder if I wonder if Sharon will be there. Yeah, I wonder wonder how she's doing. That's papancha. <laughs> and everyone, everyone recognize papancha? It's, uh, we may have, uh, it may have been happening just a moment ago. <laughs> and so the recognizing of these tendencies of the mind and the working with them is an important part of our practice. And I want to continue what we developed uh, last time, which I gave some of the background uh, of the meaning of papancha, and I want to give in more detail to talk about uh, how it works, how it works in the mind, and how it's really um, really points to the question of how we work with the thinking process, how we work in our practice with thought, and working with this tendency towards conceptual proliferation doesn't mean giving up thought, as if we could. Of course, we can't, and it really points to a skillful way of working with our thinking process. And so I want to reflect some on that. And then for the last chunk of time, I want to talk in more detail than I did last time about how to work with uh, papancha, some methods of uh, working skillfully with our tendencies to proliferate conceptually and or to have those to get lost. It's basically to get lost in our stories, our interpretations, our assumptions. So I want to begin by reading a text, and this is a a main text where Papancha is discussed. And this is uh, a text in the volume called the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And they're middle-length because they're all about 8 to 12 pages long. (laughs) And they're really kind of really nice to read, almost like... uh, one a day or something. I, I did that. A lot of friends, and I've done that, sort of, I read one a day, and it, there are 150 of them, so it takes like half a year or something. And you read them, and it's really to be taken back into the world 
of the Buddha and the world of practice. And there, there are a lot of interesting things that don't, we don't usually hear about when we hear talks or read books. There's just a lot of details. And one really gets a sense of the daily life. And for me, it was quite inspiring to read one a day for about half a year. And you can find it in the, it's the middle-length discourses in it's this brown book, and you can find it in the bookstore. And so this is from the uh, 18th discourse in this collection called The Honey Ball. And the, it's uh, Madhu Pindika Sutta. Sutta just means discourse. And it's the honey ball. And it's, it was, a honey ball was the name at the end of the sutta given to it by the Buddha because he said the teachings about papancha and the coming to rest of papanchas are quite sweet. They're like a honey ball. So here's, I'll begin right near the beginning of the, the text. Most of the texts begin, as, as many of you know, with the phrase, thus have I heard, because the teachings were an oral tradition for 500 years. They were not written down for 500 years. So people just memorized the text, and people walked around with that memory. So on one occasion, the Buddha was living in the Sakyan country at Kapilavatu in a park, and he dressed and went on the alms round. And there was a person who was also from actually the same tribe as the Buddha, the Sakya tribe, named Dandapani, who came by. And he's a little bit like his name suggests. He's a bit of a dandy, although I don't think it has the same (laughs) etymology in in the Pali language. But Dandapani, while walking and wandering for exercise, also went to the great wood where the Buddha was. And when he had entered the great wood, he went to the Bilva sapling, where the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was, and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he stood at one side, leaning on his stick, and asked, what does the Buddha assert? What does he proclaim? And the notes say that this is actually was somewhat, it was somewhat impolite in the customs of the time for him to hold his stick and to ask a, such a direct question. So he, he, there was uh, a sense in, in the social context of that time, one would have a sense there might be a little bit of arrogance in the question. And this is, uh, this is what the Buddha answered. Friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world. So he's going to talk about, the. really he's going to see some of papancha, this conceptual proliferation, as part of the roots of conflict and the roots of quarrel. One does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, its brahmas. In this generation with all the people, with the princes, the people, such a, for such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that person who abides detached from being or unattached to sensual pleasures, without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. When this was said, Dandapani shook his head, wagged his tongue, raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. Then he departed, leaning on his stick. (laughs) He shook his head, wagged his tongue, and raised his eyebrow until his forehead was puckered in three lines. In other words, he may not have quite got or may have disturbed him what he was saying. The Buddha is basically saying those who have a lot of arrogant attitudes are... um, are not at peace, and they, they live with perplexity. He may have, who knows? We don't, we don't hear from him again in the text. But uh, he went off. And then a, 
fellow monk asked, what does this really mean? And this is where the Buddha talks about papancha. What, is, what does it mean, what you said to him? And he says, practitioners, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to compulsive craving, the underlying tendency to compulsive aversion, the underlying tendency to views, the underlying tendency to doubt, to conceit, to desire for being, the underlying tendency to ignorance. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Hence those states cease without remainder. So he's saying that there's something about this tendency towards conceptual proliferation, which is at the root of quarrels, at the root of conflicts. It's getting at the root of a number of the causes of suffering. That's what he and I want to really explore that more in terms of what it means in our practice. So one way of making more sense of that is to go back to the very basic psychology that we looked at some last time, which is that we can know from, and again, this is to go back to the teaching called the teaching of dependent arising, that in a sense we bring certain background to experience. And Papancha is going to be analyzed in terms of what happens when there's uh, ordinary experience. Basically that when there's ordinary experience we have contact with a particular object, whether if the object uh, is for us of a certain nature, we have a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience or a neutral experience. And on the basis of that pleasant experience, like a pleasant experience might be, I'm sitting here, I look out, I see a deer, I say, oh, so nice. (laughs) Pleasant, Pleasant experience, unpleasant. I might be sitting here, I have a knee pain, and I might have a sense of unpleasant. And I also might be in a more neutral space where nothing is really uh, moving me one way or the other. And in this basic psychology, when we have a pleasant experience, we will tend to want to either keep it present or grab hold of it. We will tend to want to grab at the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. If we see a pleasant deer, we might, instead of meditating, we might stay there and say, oh, let me just hang out with this deer. And there's nothing in some sense problematic about that. That can be quite, uh, quite wonderful. But we might, it's, um, we might just want to stay with the pleasant experience. And with the knee pain, we might say, we may, might basically say, how do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of my knee pain? Or how do I get, I'm having, I'm having a sense of uh, anger in a given moment with a coworker. How do I get, you know, I don't want this here. How do I get rid of it? And what the analysis is, is that when we have a difficulty being mindful of the experience with a given object and of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we will tend to uh, be ruled by our tendencies to compulsively grab hold of or compulsively push away. And we will, and we will in fact, tend to grab and we will tend to push away. And if there's something neutral, we will tend to space out. Where papancha comes in is that on the basis of the perception of an object, 
there will be all sorts of associations and memories. There also will be the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And in many cases, our minds will just take off. And we will get in a, uh, almost in a kind of a bubble of thinking, associations, just like the one that I mentioned before, you know, where should I go for lunch? And we just go off in a chain of associations. And the problematic nature of that is because we will tend to be ruled by, um, we will tend to be ruled by our conditioning in those sort of states. We will, because the Buddha said that we really bring to experience, what we bring to experience that is, as it were, beneath the surface is a certain kind of um, habit energy that we have. We have certain habits from the past and we have a certain kind of ignorance that we bring to present experience. And again, the, the core nature of the ignorance that's seen as a generator of a great deal of our suffering is that we tend to think that we are comp- separate from other beings and that we have to gain happiness by accumulating pleasant experiences for this self here and avoid un- un- unpleasant experiences, which tends to put us in conflict with others and also tends to uh, be ignorant in some way of the fundamental sense of interconnection and the fundamental sense of love that is understood to be deeper in our nature. And so for various reasons, we come to experience with this kind of uh, habit energy and with this ignorance. And this is, in some sense, the fuel for papancha. In other words, if I am feeling... Um, in some sense, I don't feel like I'm adequate or there's some sense of lack or some sense of insecurity or some sense of um, not being okay as I am, which, which would be part of that habit energy and that, that ignorance. And we all share that to some extent. We all have some of that ignorance and habit energy. Then I might try to meet my need for satisfaction, let's say, by craving certain food, certain experiences, certain, um, certain things to be said to me, and so forth. And, and so what we do with our practice over time is that through mindfulness and through investigation, we learn better how to see what's happening in the present moment. We learn to be with that knee pain and learn, learn how not immediately to just go off with our thoughts and with our resistance. We learn better how with a pleasant experience just to stay there, to know that it's pleasant. We begin to notice all the thoughts, all the patterns that very naturally arise when there's contact with a given object, when there's contact with a given experience. This is what uh, is said in one of the texts. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. <laughs> That's the hook, right? <laughs> what one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these all assail and overwhelm the person. <laughs> and so that's sort of the extreme case. And I will come back to talk about how this isn't, again, saying that thinking per se is the problem. It's more what we might call unwise thinking or thinking that we have that we have lost the connection with mindfulness or with awareness. So the the 
one of the core tools is going to be to develop awareness of the whole process by which thoughts occur. The Indian sage Nisargadatta, who who, uh, died, I think, some 15 or 20 years ago, said, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. We miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. So what I want to do is explore more that tendency to create the unreal or to get lost in the associations and the, and the thoughts. So again, the part of the part of what we want to look at is it's not so much that thinking is the problem, it's that we get lost in it. And being lost, we're really, as it were, ruled by our unconscious. We're ruled by our craving, by our aversion, by, by more unconscious material. And so, again, we can point to a few ways that that, that happens. Um, I think we all know that getting, getting lost, um, you know, as someone who... Um, goes off into public events. I was, I was at an event the other day where someone came just to make uh, an announcement about the use of a microphone. And for, for whatever reason, this person seemed to be quite interested in the microphone. And people were expecting like a 30-second announcement about the microphone. But he went on for like close five or six minutes just talking about the qualities of the microphone. This was at an event where other people were wanting to talk. And and you know the the person who was emceeing it just sort of at first started looking at him, and then eventually um, made some comments, and eventually almost had to have one of those big hooks that just. <laughs> and, and we would say that for whatever reason there was papancha about the microphone, <laughs> uh, that it was it was happening in some way, uh, you know. And we can also see that kind of papancha, and some of it has a certain innocence to it, but again, it's to look at it, and we want to look and see what's helpful. I was thinking that in some ways, uh, people can do that with television or surfing the internet. You know, you just you, you do a Google to find one item on the internet. You find it, and they say, oh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go here, and then, you know, half an hour has gone by, <laughs> whatever. And again, it's nothing that could be a more innocent example of papancha, but it's really... The, the question is really, are we aware of what we're doing? And are we, in some ways, what's really the motivation for going there? That's what we want to look at. Part of what we... Did, did you have a question? It, so what you're saying is it's just distracting us from the moment. It can All be. The yeah. The yeah, there... Again, it's, we want to come back. A lot of it has to do with what's wise or unwise. But in some ways, it's that, yeah, it's that quality of being lost is the quality of papancha, of being just off in a, um, basically in a daze and just being caught in the stories and the assumptions involves buying the assumptions. Again, there, I think there's some distinctions between uh, how we... There's this, I think there's a distinction between papancha and, and some of the positive qualities of what you might call creativity. I think, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it has to do with what really is the intention that's behind, sometimes unconscious, behind all the associations. I'll come back to that, to that point about creativity because it's an interesting one. I think there's some important distinctions that we can make. 
So one of the reasons uh, that, you know, one of the sources of a lot of papancha would be craving her aversion. So it's important to be able to see what the motivation is. So just think of one form of papancha would be the kind of thought processes that might be colored by, let's say, aversion. Like I have, I've just had a difficult interaction with someone and my mind just goes off in all sorts of directions about that person. I get, you know, I'm, I just think endlessly about one incident that happened, you know, that may have happened for 10 seconds and my mind just goes off and off and off. And in some sense, I'm lost there. And I may not, I may actually be in a kind of bubble and I may not actually even necessarily know what I'm feeling, know what my emotions are. I can be just lost in there. Or are there are other ways in which when we are, uh, have a strong emotion, let's say, I, you know, have, I'm sure we've all had days where, there, where, we're, where I was thinking there's an old Rolling Stones song called Paint It Black, where, where I'm just feeling, have you ever just felt negative, where everything is just painted black in a way? That would be an example of papancha, sort of that there are underlying tendencies towards aversion which just get into everything. And we're there and we're, you know, and... I don't know, in, in extreme form, maybe, maybe not too extreme, but you know, in my, I can think of times when I would experience that and I'd be driving and for whatever reason, that state of mind just says that the entire world should work exactly as my desires want. If not, it's all bad. <laughs> Something like that. Does that, is that at all familiar? <laughs> and, and so that's where we can start to see papanchas. Oh, that's happening. And it's colored, in that case, by the aversion. Or it might be colored by craving. We might really want something. We might have a deep sense of wanting. And this can lead to the papancha, you know, just exploding in a meditation session, in daydreams or whatever. Uh, And it can make us actually think that something is much nicer than it is in our thoughts. Uh, The Tibetans have a saying, desire puts feathers on the object. (laughs) Meaning that it makes it look nicer than it is. And I think, I think we can know that, uh, you know, I mean, I can, again, I can, I think, I'm sure we can all think of fairly recent examples where, where I might have, for, if there's desire in the mind, if there's some way that we're kind of wanting, just to kind of, in our mind, it's almost like to get, have something good happen. And we say, oh, okay, I'm really, I really want to go there to have that meal or something. And we actually get there, we eat it, and it's okay, but it's certainly not what we might have thought. You know, or, or the, it's like desire puts feathers on the object or makes the food look better than it is. Or, you know, in a meditation retreat, this is really obvious. And again, I'm coming back to examples of food because in retreats, that's like the main preoccupation sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, that plus sleep. Uh, for, for some people, for all of us at some times. And so people might just be really wanting the meal and then they get to the meal and it's actually a little bit disappointing. But it's like the, the feathers were on the object, at least during the meditation, because actually, this is related to your original question, the function of craving may be less to actually get what we want and more to take us out of the present moment, mm-hmm. which is interesting. That's what, we have to, that's what we have to look at. So again, uh, uh, the, the, the qualities of craving or aversion can affect our perception. They can lead to this sense of papancha, uh, we may actually be, if we have aversion, we may just go off spinning in ways and we may not actually be able to see, let's say, someone for whom, you know, if you have an enemy or someone that you really don't like, it could be an actual person in your life, it could be like a 
prominent politician of, you know, <laughs> of one persuasion or the other. And when you have that, when you have that aversion, it's like some people don't even want to hear certain people on television or the radio. Just they hear the person, they turn off the radio when the person comes on. Or you hear something positive about, let's say, for some, you know, a lot of people have this in relation to the current president. They hear one good story about, like, he was kind to his daughter. Says, "No way, couldn't be, couldn't be true," <laughs> you know. Or, or it could be on the opposite side of the spectrum as well. And there's the purpose here is to really look and see what the tendencies to proliferation are. We get to see how they are often driven by a kind of compulsive craving or aversion. So one of the ways that we'll practice is we can actually go back and see if we can actually notice those roots at the, at the root of the, of the associations. We also get caught in, in views, in concepts, in, in worldviews. And we, we sometimes, one of the qualities of Papancha also is that it almost takes us into a bubble of a kind of way of thinking, a worldview, Last time we talked about how that sometimes is the case with religious views, that we can be in a kind of a bubble in which there is maybe rather little contact with reality. You know, that we live in, and, and this is the quality of Papancha. It's sort of a, almost like a constructed virtual universe of thoughts, associations, and it can be quite removed from reality. And part of the purposes of mindfulness is to have that connection with lived experience. And so, uh, a lot, again, a lot of this is being generated because of the unconscious tendencies, the, the underlying ignorance. And as we work with mindfulness more, we get closer to uh, what's actually the root. We get closer to the lived experience. We get to see, okay, here was, the, here was the, my actual experience with this object or with this person that I get to experience it more directly rather than just going off into association so immediately. There's an extreme version of this. I think it's really a teaching story of Papancha about a man who, this is a, an old uh, Buddhist story, about a man who created a tiger in his imagination. It was like a Papancha tiger. And he created the tiger in his imagination. In the story, the tiger got so real that the man felt that he was being eaten by the tiger. It's, almost, it's, almost, it's a kind of a version almost like the Frankenstein story. Like we create something that becomes this, this creature of the imagination that can actually come back and torment us, even though it's entirely imaginary. You know, it's quite something. Um, and I was, I was, um, I mentioned I was interested in that part. Last time I mentioned I was, I was, um, when I was thinking about the talk for Papancha, I read an article on, the, on Iraq in the New York Review of Books. And I wanted just to mention this. And again, I wanted to say, as I said last time, that I'm, I'm not saying this from a partisan perspective. I think we could find Papancha well represented in all political persuasions <laughs> and in ourselves. But there was something that really was striking for me about the way that a lot of the suffering in Iraq is, has been caused by, the, by almost like the decision to not be in contact with reality. It's quite striking. You know, and I just wanted to read some from this passage. It was from a very long article that was quite striking. The administration constructed precisely the government they wanted, 
centralized, highly secretive. It's clean, direct lines of decision, unencumbered by information. <laughs> information could slow decision making. Indeed, when it had to do with a bold and risky venture, information and discussion, discussion, an airing, of, say, of the precise obstacles facing a democratic transition conducted with a handful of troops, that could paralyze decision-making. If the sober consideration of history and facts stood in the way of bold action, it would be the history and facts that would be discarded. So it's, it's actually sobering. This is, I think, an extreme version of a kind of living in a papancha world. And then the person concludes, the systemic failures in Iraq resulted in large part from an almost willful determination to cut off those in the government who knew anything from those who made the decisions. And, it, and so the whole enterprise becomes almost a creature of papancha. The Buddha said at one point, whatever they imagine it to be, it truly it becomes otherwise. So there's a sense, and this, this is the conclusion of the article, said that the administration looked away from the reality. Confronted with great difficulties, their answer was to blind themselves and put their faith in ideology and hope. The evangelical vision may have made sense of threat after September 11th easier to bear, but it did not change reality. The result is that the wave of change that they were determined to set in course by unleashing American military power may well turn out to be precisely the wave of Islamic radicalism that they had hoped to prevent. Whatever they imagine it to be, it becomes otherwise with Papancha. And again, that's an extreme example. And again, I hope that it's taken in a nonpartisan spirit because again, I think we could think, see that with Democrats and with, with a number of people. We can, again, we can see it with ourselves. That's a very stark example linked with a lot of suffering, but it can, can show us that, that direction. So a few, a few words about how, in some sense, working with papancha tells us something about working with thought. And it's, again, it's important to say that papancha, or this proliferation, is not the same thing as thinking per se, <clears throat> that it's really a question of what is a wise use of thought. Because obviously thinking, planning, deciding where to go for lunch. We have to do that, particularly lunch. And so the question is, do we get lost in our thinking? When we look at our thinking, is our thinking, is there some mindfulness of our thinking? Do we get lost? Do we have what is called wise attention? Do we have a way of, uh, and this, I'll read one more passage from another text where there's an illustration of unwise attention. This is the mind, this is unskillful use of thought. This is how a person attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having This is papancha, by the way. (laughs) Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else the person's inwardly perplexed about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So this, this is a, a direct report of Papancha from 2,500 years ago. So it's still around. <laughs> and 
And so that would be unwise attention. The wise attention would be ability to catch ourselves to really, so so if we're, let's say, I need to plan this trip and I set aside some time for planning, that would be a kind of wise attention. We're planning, we're using the thought function, or I need to think out my options for this job. That would be a kind of wise use of thought. The papancha would be particularly the kind driven by craving, aversion, and almost unconscious material. And and, it would, and again, we need, to, we need to work with mindfulness to really see the difference. So there also could be a very valuable function of thought in understanding, for example, how papancha is, is uh, generated. Obviously, this whole talk is in the realm of thought. You know, so what differentiates this thought by Donald from papancha? Uh, hopefully, it's because there's some awareness and it has a clear purpose. It has... It's somewhat circumscribed. It's not totally going out of control. I'm aware of the clock, I'm, and so forth. And so there's some some use of thought that is not of the same quality as papancha. How we might use we use thought when we say the metta phrases. When we we use phrases, we use words and concepts that are that are somewhat demarcated. I say, may I be happy? May I be full of love? And we direct the mind in a certain way using thought, but we're not. We're not driven by the same sort of out-of-control quality. Or we might really use reflection. Again, use of thought very skillfully. We might reflect, is this valuable? You know, where am I going? What is uh, not quite like the quotation I just read. But we might use reflection in a very uh, helpful way to ask questions about um, what's happening in our lives. So I want to close by talking in more, in more depth about how to work with papancha, how to work with the tendencies to this conceptual proliferation. So the first would be basic mindfulness, to know that, to come to know more both direct experience and the tendencies to thinking. So every time when we just notice, oh, I'm lost, and we come back to the breath, let's say, we're strengthening mindfulness and we're strengthening the ability to be Uh, wisely with papancha. We can be aware of our tendencies to proliferate. And so the naming of thinking that's starting to see, okay, here are my different patterns. We start to, with mindfulness, when we sit, one of the things that happens is we, in a way, take an inventory of the tendencies of our own minds. We get to see all the different patterns, and it's helpful to name them, to label them, to say, okay, here's planning, here's fantasizing, here's remembering, here are my top ten Here's my top ten papancha list, <laughs> you know, and we and it's actually helpful. I, I think I, I and many of you may have done that. Actually, at one point, say, okay, what are my top ten list of where I get lost, and to actually name them, and and then sometimes in the middle of a sitting, if we're on the lookout for those ten, we can actually notice them much sooner, and that's 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 important. So the naming, getting familiarity with our own patterns, uh, starting to see them more quickly going back to work with immediate experience. And we can also start to study the whole process by which papancha develops. And it, it, increasingly, we may be able to see, oh, that papancha developed from, this, uh, from my anger or from my getting lost in wanting or something. And we can begin to, then when we have seen that, and sometimes we only see that after the fact, maybe two hours later or, you know, or maybe in a meditation, ten minutes later we see, oh, I was lost in that oh, that must have been connected with that first feeling. 
And when we, that's, that would be an example of skillful reflection. And then the next time it happens, we may notice it closer to the beginning, or we may give energy. Next time I'm really uh, angry, I want to really be with it and study it. And notice where my mind tends to go. So that can be a very valuable way to see the papancha. And so there can be a special need to look at the tendencies towards craving and aversion, to really look at the wanting in the mind and the craving, because that's at the root of so much of papancha, so much of the proliferation. So to really know those tendencies in ourselves better. Another very helpful way to work with papancha is to work with the body. Papancha is especially a mental phenomenon. It takes us, in a way, uh, out of immediate experience, and it also takes us out of our body. And one technique that you may find very helpful, and some of you probably work with this, is sometimes when there's a lot of repetitive thought, when we have a particular pattern that's just happening over and over again, like may happen in a sitting or may happen during the day, and you notice, oh, I'm thinking about you know, melodrama number three for the 43rd time. You know, and oh, there's melodrama number three again. And we notice it. And sometimes a very valuable tool is to actually move to attention to the body. When we notice a repetitive thought sometimes, like I've just gone off thinking about that discussion I had with this person yesterday for the 34th time, and I'm mostly caught in the thoughts, I can bring my attention and actually bring it after I've just done, done that, I can go to the body and bring my attention around the heart and just see if I can listen for something that's there. Because oftentimes, there's something beneath the surface that's driving the papancha. And grounding in the body can often help us notice that. You know, like, uh, I can notice, um, you know, I can notice myself having had a discussion with a person that was unpleasant let's say, and I notice that I'm thinking about it all the time for a while. And then I say, let me check in with my body. And I check in, and I just hang out there for a while, and then I go, oh, there's a little constriction in my chest. Oh, I can feel some sadness. And my experience is that sometimes when we tune in to what's in the body or in the heart, we can actually notice more clearly uh, what is generating the papancha. And then actually can help us to act, to act more wisely. If we just followed the papancha, the next time we saw that person, we would just might let that person have a piece of our mind, so to speak. The papancha piece of our mind. <laughs> and so if we actually can be more in touch with what's generating it, it can actually, um, again, save us from some unskillful ways of acting. We can also um, use reflection. We can ask ourselves sometimes when we have a lot of papancha happening, is this helpful? Is this really going anywhere? And that, again, it's sometimes hard to have that reflection arise, but it sometimes can be very helpful just to ask a question. Is this useful? And we may be going down the same road that we've gone down 10 or 20 or 30 times, and sometimes an act of reflection saying, I've gone down that road 10 or 20 or 30 times, and where has it led me? And we might say, it's led me towards wonderful thoughts of revenge. <laughs> That's, uh, but we might, we, might, uh, we might say, do I really want to hang out with wonderful thoughts of revenge? Or we might say, it's just spun, kept me spinning around and feeling a little off-center, and I really don't want to feed that. So that reflection can help us to um, not to 
sometimes go along because often when we have mindfulness, there are moments in which we have a choice. Do you know that? I think we all know this some. There are moments when we, when we kind of, when we have enough mindfulness, we can ask, do I really want to go there? And those are key moments with Papancha or actually with a lot of other experiences because we have used reflection to try to see what's wise to do. We can also work with humor with Papancha. There is something which is quite funny about the process of Papancha, you know, and it's, it reminds me of you know, that common definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again with the hope of different results. <laughs> right? And there's, there's something that's, do you know that one? <laughs> and there's something about uh, uh, seeing, there's something funny about the fact that we just go off and think the same thought over and over again. You know, I think of, um, I think of uh, Gil Fransdell, who's also a teacher at Spirit Rock, and he has a quip that if someone else followed us around and repeated what we do with our own minds, if someone followed us around and said what we actually say to ourselves and said it to us, we would find that person the most obnoxious person on the planet. <laughs> and yet we, we're tolerant of ourselves doing it. So there, there can be both some humor and some sense of is this, and some questioning, is this really what I want? And sometimes, sometimes we can just, when we notice that we're in papancha, this is the last tool that I'll mention, sometimes when we notice that we're in papancha, our minds are just spinning. Sometimes we just need to change the venue. Something, you know, I find if I'm caught in a, my mind going around in a certain way, sometimes I just need to take a walk, do something physical, do some exercise, uh, change the venue, change the energy, basically. Because the papancha energy will tend to keep going, and it's very helpful sometimes just to shift. You know, just to, uh, just to, it might be to meditate, it might be to do something physical, take a walk, talk with a friend, just get out of the energy that we're in. And so there is this quality when we work more with papancha, when we cut through it some, there is a kind of settling that occurs. We don't get as lost in papancha as we used to, as we see it more. And there can be tremendous learning that occurs when we see some of the roots of papancha. Because in a sense we live probably more of our lives than we might want to acknowledge in papancha. It's sobering in a way. You know, that, that, and when we see it more clearly, when we notice some of the roots, there's a kind of settling that occurs. There's, there can be actually profound transformation by looking at papancha and really looking at it carefully and noting it and seeing the roots and saying, do I really want to go there? And seeing old habits and working with them. And so this is really why I think the Buddha talked about this work with papancha as ultimately quite sweet, like a honey ball. There's a sweetness of the mind as it settles down, as it's less caught in papancha. And that's really what the direction of this work and this practice points to. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Please. Yeah. Sylvia, and I, we were talking about papancha per se, but I think it somehow related at the same time. Yeah. And it was really, she gave a tool that I thought was really good and valuable. And it was, um, you know, we were all leaving on Saturday, and she said, you know, if you get plagued by, she was talking about a thought as opposed to, yeah. well, the conceptual orientation takes us the way you're being. She said, you know, you could say to it, 
Saturday when I'm on the plane. Yeah. I'm yours all day. Yeah. But I'm not dealing now. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there's a leap of faith involved. Yeah. By Saturday, it's not going to be going on. Yeah. But if you, you know, if you get caught up in it, mm -hmm. and to just say, okay, okay, but not now. Mm -hmm. Well, that, it's actually, uh, it really points to another kind of tool which we can add to that, that short list that I gave, and it's, it's great. It's really, it's, and it really points to the, what the nature of wise attention is or wise use of thoughts, which is helped a lot by boundaries. That's really what we're talking about. It's like sometimes if we, you know, sometimes we'll find ourselves in our meditation planning the day, or those of you who are of a creative bent might be writing your short story, or forever, for students, or sometimes for people in my role, it might be sitting in meditation planning the talk, right? And so um, what we, what's very helpful, what I found, is very similar to what you said. It's like saying, now I will stay with the present, but I will set aside a time in which I actually will do that planning. Because part of the reason that we have this everything invade our meditation is that we sometimes don't give enough clear space for planning. So naturally the planning comes into the meditation, right? So if we set a boundary time and say, this is my planning time, or this is the time I'm going to work on my talk, or this is the time that I, this is, this is the time when I can just let things go free, and say, uh, that boundary, it gives some um, uh, freedom for the mind. The mind because it's, it's like giving, you know, it's saying, telling a dog, well, here's your bone, but you can't eat it here. Eat it over there. <laughs> and it's a little bit like that. And, you know, I, I know I've used a tool in, at the end of retreats. Sometimes when we do retreats or we do meditation, we have all these ideas of how we're going to improve our lives. And we could just spend the whole retreat planning and thinking, oh, you know, it's, it gets ironic at a certain point because we're actually not meditating at all. We're just thinking about how my meditation, which I actually spent a few moments on, is going to help my life. <laughs> uh, but what, what I found really helpful was to actually say, I'm going to set aside time before the retreat ends, maybe half an hour, 10 or 15 minutes, and I will really, that time is for bringing the fruits of the retreat into my life. And I found that doing that just lets me relax, and I can give that time, and I don't have to do it all during a retreat. And I think, we, so it's some, I think it's related to what you're saying. It's like just saying, okay, here are the boundaries. I think that's part of a skillful use of thinking, is to give it some boundaries, because it can just take over everything. Yeah. So it's a great question, great, great report. Please. Um, you mentioned earlier that you might come back to the idea of um, creativity. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think it's related to what I just said, that there, there, Papancha works a lot by associations, by just one thing. It's like the links on the Internet. You know, and it's just, and there's something that is... Um, similar in the creative process. And so uh, I, it's important to me to say, well, how is this work with papancha not just a, a damping of creativity? And, and I think some of it has to do with this sense of boundaries. You know, uh, and in, there's, there's a concept in, in um, Buddhist practice called clear comprehension, which has to do with a certain sense of here's what I'm doing. Here's, so, so I have found, for example, in working with people who are particularly writers, that, that sense of, uh, you know, sometimes we may have these wonderful insights because the, the, um, the open mind, the, the stable, relaxed, open mind can be highly intuitive and have all these creative leaps and jumps that are quite, actually quite beautiful sometimes. 
And so are we just asking for that to be just tossed away by the work with Papancha? And I think it's actually a complex question. It's really about the relationship of creativity to this practice that we do. But I would, I'll, I'll say one or two things, and maybe other people have some explorations, is that, first of all, the boundaries help. You know, like when talking with people who are writers, and we say, well, okay, well, well, be careful about having your meditation be your writing. And I usually, for myself and others, say, okay, um, have your meditation have the discipline to just stay with the object and keep coming back. But then maybe be set up a time right after you finish your meditation period in which you can be in that very open, intuitive space and bring it to your writing. So it's making a distinction between the two so that because... Otherwise, we, we don't have the discipline. So some of it's, there, I think it's really having a certain discipline to the creativity. Um, does anyone want to add anything that you may have found? Some of, some of you may be artists and have worked with this. Yeah, please. Well, I've worked with writers for quite a while. Yeah. I write myself. And, uh, one of the expressions they say about writers is a great deal of their writing is from their pain and their fear, yeah. which would be very much part of the papancha. Yeah. And to take that and to start to write it out like a journaling every morning, or a morning journal, or however you want to do it, I've seen massive changes in people that way. Hmm. In fact, sitting here now, I'm going. I'm going to write out. Want to write out my papancha right now that keeps running with me. Yeah. Again. Yeah. It's partly to notice it and then, you know, just to see how wisely to work with it. To write up right from your blood, as they say. Yeah. When you're particularly if you write with pen or pencil, you read it in your hand that way. You start to feel it and see it in a different way. Yeah. So, so the problem is not the thoughts themselves or the associations, it's the uh, lack of awareness. And, the, and when we're not aware, then we're driven by some of these unconscious tendencies. That's the problem. The, if we could actually be aware, you know, and so there are, you know, sometimes just to be aware of the whole stream of thoughts and associations, if we could be mindful of it, it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. I wanted to ask on that. When yeah. I grew, growing up, I... Velchmerz was a very big word. I mean, Velchmerz. And I had a lot of Velchmerz. Pain, pain at the I world. Think it comes yeah. in with everybody Jewish gets a load of Velchmerz. <laughs> uh, can, can you translate Velchmerz? Velchmerz, say world weariness or worrying about the world or concern with people. You know, concern with things. It sounds like a very high ideal, and it is. Yeah. But it has a lot of what we're talking about yeah. here in it. And it's like you fall into your Velchmerz because it's very comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm listening to you very closely. I'm really trying to get to that place where I can go. I'll take that later now because I think yeah. a lot of uh, proliferation causes great anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a lot of the our anxiety is in that thing we keep running in it. Yeah, we keep repeating the stories. It's like that creation of the um, the bubble. We repeat the story over and over again until we believe it, yeah. and then we get, then we're caught in. It's like the the created tiger eating the person who created it. Yeah. It's a great distress in, in the process. Yeah. That's what I find when I get into it. I'm distrusting, and I have an expectation of how the process should, as you said, work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like trusting that the way it works is the way it's supposed to work now. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot in what you said. Please. Maybe the one or two more. We want, we hope in the creating of it that there will be a shift mm-hmm. and that we 
have to keep creating it. I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like Freud talking about the repetition control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm a therapist, and oftentimes people will say, why do I keep doing it over and over again? Well, I know the pattern. Why do I keep doing it? And I think it is the search for somehow having a different, a shift, and it's through awareness that mm-hmm. the shift comes. But the compulsion to do it over and over again has a function, which is to bring you closer to the shift, maybe. Because somehow you keep get seeing in it, you keep getting in the same trouble or the mm-hmm. same negativity, and somehow I think that's the reality. Right, and it gives it gives some stability, some meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. we mm-hmm. generally prefer a meaning that involves suffering over a lack of meaning, <laughs> or, or or a lack of having our world. We we cling to the old suffering as opposed to the new unknown. So um, there's something in there, and it's also that we're we're not in touch often with what's driving the repetition. That and then I guess a lot of the work of therapy or of meditation is to actually go more deeply and see what's beneath the surface or more unconscious or you know which may be and some of those tools like of dropping into the body can actually take us there sometimes too, because it's sometimes when we just stay in the mind and try to figure out in the mind. It's like it's a, it's almost like disconnected from what's actually generating the papancha, which could be the craving, the aversion, which could have some deeper roots as well. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot there. Yeah. Did you have a, a question or a comment? I I was really resonating with this teaching because I've been in therapy for eating disorder. Yeah. And it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah, maybe just to to name that yeah. a little more clearly, what the process is, and yeah, thank you so much for, yeah, and it's it's um, just the name papancha. I mean, it sounds like something, like a, a little bit like a tropical fruit that we might have in, <laughs> in the afternoon, but it's uh, what I what I would uh, leave us with is the invitation to continue practicing with papancha. Pascal will be here next week. He know he was at the, the first talk on papancha, and he will know that we've been practicing with it. So I would invite us to see ways of working in the coming week with papancha. You know, I, I and others have named probably at least half a dozen ways to work with papancha. You know, maybe I'll, you know, I'll just review them really briefly. First is just to be mindful of the tendencies, the naming, Maybe naming of the top six, the top ten melodramas can be very helpful because it helps us to notice them <laughs> more quickly when they're happening. Which a lot of this is just getting familiar, and we have to have a lot of patience with papancha. Remember that, because it keeps on happening. Can you give us some examples of that? You said that you said um, fantasizing, romanticizing. I mean, in terms of the patterns. Yeah. Yeah, it could be, you know, fantasizing, remembering, planning, uh, engaging in dialogue with person X, person Y, and so forth. Let me just name the rest of them, and then I, because I want to finish, because we're at at time. Uh, So we can somehow go, learn to go back to the original stimulating contact. It could be the pleasant or unpleasant experience that we have and see how papancha is generated from that. So it might be to go back and increasingly be uh, closer to the origin as we study it more. 
Another would be to be particularly attentive to craving and aversion. Another way is to stay grounded in the body and to come back to the body when we have repetitive thoughts. Come back to the body and the heart. Then there's reflection, just asking, is this helpful? Reflecting on what's happening in the present moment. Uh, Humor and changing the context. So let's just sit for a minute or two to close. We might invite our intentions, how we might work with this uh, practice, if if this has uh, motivated us. How might I work skillfully in the next week? And so we close by remembering that we do this exploration, this practice, not just for ourselves, but for others. And may the fruits of our time together ripple out in known and unknown ways, moving towards touching all beings for their benefit, for their healing, and for their transformation. Thank you very much for your uh, kind and close attention. I could feel that. Thank you.